Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, So we are in this series called uh, Culture Shock, and last week, uh, Pastor Brian kind of kicked us off taking a look at the church in Corinth. Uh, and it was, kind of, it was pretty fascinating. If you weren't here last week, uh, go back online and check that out because there are so many similarities between their culture and our culture today. I mean, they were self-seeking. They were climbing the ladder. They were uh, getting ahead of the other guy no matter what the cost. Uh, progress and status were at the top of their priority lists. Right? I, I had a guy after one of my recent messages um, just... T- so thankful for all the, the historical context that we're able to, to talk about and how important that is and how we should hear more historical context so we don't repeat the, the same mistakes over and over again. And I certainly agree with that. But here's the thing. Um, we all kind of, we've all been to the place where we know some of the consequences of our actions, Right? And we, we do those things anyways. Uh, we know plenty of people who have been in similar shoes as we've been, and, and we still go down the, a similar path and make some of those same issues, knowing what the consequences are going to be like. And so while I think it's absolutely important to study history and know those things, we still have a choice to make. We still have decisions to make within that. And so we're going to look at some, some historical context today, but we're still plagued with many of the same issues that the church in Corinth was plagued with. And we're still faced with a lot of the same uh, decisions and choices that they uh, faced as well. And so today we're going to look at a very important subject, something that all of us deal with. And it's this idea of what causes disruption in community? What causes relational breakdown, right? This is something that we've been dealing with for years and years and years. We suffer from this. The Corinthians suffered from this. Our nation suffers from this. Our workplaces suffer from this. So what's, what's the answer? How do, we, how do we fix all this, right? I, I mean, wouldn't it be great if everybody that didn't share our political views just moved away? <laughs> that would solve all the issues, wouldn't it? The correct answer is no. That is not the solution, no matter how much some of you might want that to happen, right? That's not, that's not going to fix anything. And so maybe it's just too hard for our country to, to get to that place as a whole. Maybe, maybe the only place to really build true community and love is in the workplace, right? Where you can use the mission of the company and, and kind of the culture and paychecks as leverage uh, to, to kind of foster this, this idea of community, but you, you might know that the number one complaint in the workplace is people, right? Bad relationships, office politics, silos, turf wars, favoritism, incompetent coworkers, bad bosses, right? Maybe that's not the place that we can find true community and love. And so maybe the only stress-free, peace-filled community that you can expect to find is with your family and with your relatives, right? A <laughs> lot of laughter on that one, Right? 
all of your family and in-laws, all of the kind of household chores and the division of labors trying to get everything done and the conflict management and resentment and fights that kind of come out of that. Maybe, maybe that isn't the right place. Maybe that doesn't really happen. And so where can you find a place where everybody just kind of gets along? There's no factions. There's no quarrels. There's no, none of that. There's no small-mindedness, no grumbling, no complaints, no petty arguments, right? Where there's no ego, egos battling against each other. I mean, thank God for the church. <laughs> Except no church I've ever been a part of because we all bring those problems into the church too, don't we? And this is what's happening in the church of Corinth. See, Pastor Brian mentioned last week, uh, Corinthians is this letter Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago. And Corinth is this sort of startup culture that's being rebuilt by Rome. And there's a massive amount of wealth generated and a lot of competition generated with lots of people trying to climb the ladder, lots of people kind of upping their status and gaining honor and glory, all of those things. And Paul comes along and brings this message of Jesus, all the wisdom that Jesus brought to the earth. And we studied this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount series uh, last year, but Paul kind of gathers together all of this wisdom and is writing to this new church that he uh, helped start. And he's far away at this point, um, most likely in a city called Ephesus, uh, when he writes this. And in this letter, he has this issue that he's trying to address. See, in Corinth, there, were, there was this relational meltdown with all these factions and divisions uh, and quarrels going on in the church. And so, Paul, he, here's what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, and he's using this kind of family language here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, I want you to imagine that you're uh, in Corinth as this letter is being read, and Paul just started the church there, and the church is just getting off the ground, and already it's, spl it's splitting and into factions and, and quarrels and breaking up. And it's very interesting how Paul uh, finds out this information. It says that some people like slaves or servants or relatives from Chloe's household uh, had told Paul about that, had informed him. And Chloe's kind of an interesting character. We don't know a whole lot about her, uh, but we do know that she was a woman. Uh, she uh, was the head of her own household, which was very rare in that culture. Uh, we know that she was really wealthy, which was very rare in the church. And we also know that she was crazy about Jesus. She loved Jesus. She had put all of her wealth, all of her household, all of her belongings at the disposal of the church. And she's thought to be also from Ephesus, um, and so she may have been one of those that had gained her wealth through trade from Asia through the city of Corinth. And remember, most people in this ancient culture were illiterate. And so this, this letter wouldn't have been passed from person to person in the church to be read privately. Uh, this was a letter that would have been uh, read as a group uh, in a gathering, much like uh, we're in here. And then this, these words come from Paul. This is great. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And everybody at that point is just looking at those from Chloe's household. Like, are you kidding me? You had to go and tell Paul? Like, we're going to be in the Bible and criticized for thousands of years because you had to go and be tattletales to Paul. What is wrong with you? Right? 
But this is what's happening in Corinth. Paul writes this letter and it's, it's a really interesting moment of those from, uh, some from Chloe's household had informed me. And then he describes how this relationship breakdown uh, is happening. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And he comes back to this a little later in this letter. And he says, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? It is, aren't you? Aren't you operating apart from God's power and apart from God's direction? Aren't you acting like just mere humans trying to do this on your own? And look what happens. People are dividing the church over which teacher they like best. Come on. And Paul starts this church and a while later, Apollos comes along and he's apparently a really dynamic speaker. He's really great. He's, he's described as educated and eloquent. But Paul... Not, not so much. We don't, know, we don't really know what Paul's speaking ability was like, but it's interesting in his second letter to Corinth, he writes this about himself. He says, For some say his, Paul's, letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Right? Paul may have been a really boring speaker. Like really boring. I love this. We read in Acts that Paul, as Paul's teaching in an upper room with a group of people gathered, there's a young man named Eutychus that is sitting in the windowsill listening, trying to take all this in. And, and the text says, as Paul goes on and on and on, Eutychus actually falls asleep. And that's depressing no matter who you are uh, whenever you're speaking. I know. I worked with youth ministry uh, for quite a number of years. And it is depressing whenever somebody falls asleep. But it goes further for Paul. Eutychus falls asleep and he falls out of the windowsill and lands a couple stories down and dies. So literally, Paul is not killing it with his speeches. He's literally killing people, right? It's incredible. But Paul goes downstairs and he picks this kid up and, and he brings him back to life. So Paul does kind of have that uh, going on for him. It comes in handy, I guess. But every speaker runs into this. They wrestle with this from, from time to time. Uh, many years ago, there was a young pastor leaving his first church, and he's saying goodbye to people, and uh, a lady comes up just bawling and bawling, and, he's, and that kind of feeds his ego a little bit. Oh, this, this lady really likes me. And so he, he says, oh, don't worry. I'm sure the next pastor is going to be even better. And she responds. She says, that's what everybody keeps saying, but they keep getting worse, right? <laughs> You guys laugh at my cheesy jokes. It's great. But this comparison thing goes on in churches all the time. And some people say, oh, I, I prefer pastor so-and-so. And, -so. and that's, that's fine. Maybe you relate to pastor so-and-so better. Some people will say, well, I follow Christ. I follow Jesus. And, well, that's the churchy answer. And, of course, that's the right answer. But isn't it true? We can often do more damage with the right answer when we have the wrong heart behind it. Right? And so this surface, the surface problem in Corinth right now is factions and divisions among, amongst the church. But there's something deeper going on. I want to take a look underneath the surface because Paul's actually battling a mindset. He's, he's battling a cultural practice that involves speakers coming into Corinth. That will help us understand what's really going on here. 
See, in, in, in Greece, rhetoric, this ability to command language uh, was highly valued. Is really important. It played a part in legal settings and politics, and eventually it came, became a, a form of entertainment. And by the time the Roman Empire came along, um, these, th- this ability to use language kind of morphed into traveling celebrities. They were known as sophists. And it, it's, it comes from the Greek word for wisdom, and it's where we get our name Sophia today. And so when Paul uses the term wisdom and eloquence coming up uh, in this passage, you kind of have to put air quotes around it because um, the wisdom and eloquence that he's talking about is what the sophists would use to gain honor and gain glory for themselves, okay? But by uh, Paul's day, a sophist was really like a rock star. They would enter into competitions with each other, like Corinthian Idol or something. And these guys, thanks. These guys, these guys could amaze people, right, with their, with their ability. They could make people stand up and cheer. They could, they could bring people to tears. They were able to dazzle people with their ability. They, they were masters of their art, and they mastered the art of self-promotion. They mastered the art of building their brand. They mastered the art of extending their own platform to gain honor and to gain glory and to gain fame for themselves. There was a sophist named Favorinius who was so successful, they they built a statue to him. Nobody's building statues to Paul at this point. When a historian Plutarch came to Rome, he asked if if he could dine with a famous sophist named Atticus. Right? Nobody in the Roman elite is asking to, to have dinner with, with the Apostle Paul. Right? There was another sophist named Licinius who, who made 400 drachmas, which is more than a whole year's worth of wages for a Roman soldier for one performance. Nobody, nobody's paying Paul that kind of money. As a matter of fact, Paul is uh, working like a slave making tents. The way the, the game worked was these rock stars, these sophists would use their ability, use their artistry to get rich, right? And it's precisely because of that that Paul refused to do that. He actually earns his own money making, making tents, which is kind of an insult to the wealthy who might want to sponsor him. But he did this to be, be able to speak freely the gospel of Christ to anybody, anywhere with no strings attached. See, these sophists use their ability to... to get rich. They competed to see who could get the most followers, and they called them disciples. And when they start this new thing uh, called the church in Corinth, and this man named Paul comes and brings this pretty remarkable message, they think, I I know what this is. I know how this deal works. He's, He's one of them. And Paul has to say, no, no, you don't understand. You have no idea See, he, he comes and speaks this remarkable message, but he does these odd things at the same time. Like, he doesn't have a sponsor. He, he's not making money. He's actually working like a slave, making tents. And he says these kind of strange things like, Apollos, he's not my rival. I'm not in competition with him. He's my partner. He's my brother. Everyone that's helped by Apollos, that's a win for me. And it's kind of ironic because Jesus came as the Messiah, he came as the Savior, and everybody thought, I know what this is. This is is success, this is power, this is the ability to control and overthrow. And Jesus has to teach everybody, no, it's not about that. It's about this humble, self-sacrificing, self-giving love, and it eventually kills him on a cross. 
And then Paul comes along to Corinth as an apostle, and he has to educate these and re-educate these people about this same humble, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And it kills him too, and we're told, and we know through church history that he was also killed on a cross. But this is, this is human nature. This is you. This is me. We have this, this thing where we take good things. We take good things and turn them into so, a source of division and, and, and quarrels because of this ego stuff that gets involved. Paul goes on. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No, Jesus was, right? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you. And then he goes on this little strange uh, rant on baptism. He says, except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. What is that? Why is he going into all this stuff? It seems like a strange little aside. But in Corinth, followers of these rock star sophists, they would claim a special relationship with their guy. Right? And it was because they wanted status uh, from being associated with their guy. Yeah, he, yeah I know him. They're like name dropping in, in, in uh, Corinth. But baptism became uh, a similar thing in the church. Church people were using who they got baptized by as a source of status. Yeah, well, he's my guy. He, he dunked me in the pool. It was pretty awesome. Like, who baptized you? And it was this weird thing of, of, of status. And it's amazing that for 2,000 years, the church and whole denominations have been fighting over and splitting over baptism, of all things. John Ortberg, he outlines this great. He says, some churches say you have to only sprinkle the water. Some say you have to pour it on the forehead. Some say you have to immerse the whole body or it doesn't count. Quakers don't use water at all. Some say you can only baptize adults. Some say if you baptize infants and they die, they'll go to a place called limbo. Some say you must baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some say you can only baptize in the name of Jesus. In some churches, they dunk you three separate times. Some churches have to go or have to have godparents. Some churches forbid godparents. Some churches call baptism a sacrament. Some churches say there is no such thing as a sacrament. Churches will fight over whether or not to count another church's baptism as a real baptism. He says, I kid you not, in some independent Baptist churches, even if you were baptized by immersion as an adult in a Baptist church, it doesn't count unless it was an independent Baptist church. Whew. Right? That's crazy. That's crazy. Now, Paul was extremely serious about baptism. And for many, it was a costly, costly thing. And it, it was a courageous thing because in that world, when you were baptized, it meant you were cutting yourself off. They'd be cut off often from their families. They'd be, there was a huge financial and social uh, cost and relational cost associated with it. It was really stepping into a new way of life. It was associating and being identified with Jesus. Okay? It was a very powerful moment, and, and it's a powerful moment for us um, today as well. And we're going to be celebrating baptism later on this year. And if you follow Jesus and you haven't taken that step, I hope, I hope you take that step into baptism. Because it's something you will remember for the rest of your life. And we're going to be there cheering you on as you do it. 
But what Paul is talking about and saying here, and the reason he has this little thing of, oh, I baptized uh, only a couple people, and oh yeah, there was that other one, I don't even remember. The reason he's saying this odd little thing is he's saying, I'm not baptizing you to build my brand. That's not what this is about. This is not about extending Paul's platform. This is not about Paul's ego, right? Because baptism is about identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the secret of community that our world needs to hear. This is the secret of relationships and the only way relationships can be healed. Now, that seems like a weird thing, but let me explain that. Because contrary to conventional wisdom, unity and community don't come by just being around people who are like us. We often think that what kills relationships are our differences. And if we, had, uh, if we just had the same ideology, if we just had the same political stances, if we just had the same identity or the same culture or the same language or ethnicity, or if we could just educate people enough about all of those differences, it would make everything okay. We often believe that. But if you get a whole group of people in the same room that are from the same ideology, political background, same education, same culture, same ethnicity, same even gender, right? It's not going to be a paradise. We know this. We do. And it's because the problem isn't the differences of opinion that we have. It's this stubborn, self-seeking ego, like me first ego that we have. Isn't that true? That's why people need and what relationships need is to be brought back to the cross. See, when we bring our relationships to God and ask for his help, we give up our right to have our own way. Because unity always begins with a self-giving love, a self-sacrificing love. Community always begins with a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And every family begins this way. You think about it, a mom gives up nine months of her life, of her body, to, to make a tiny little person, a self-giving love. And God's family starts this way. We read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. And Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, and he would be lifted up on a cross. And what a strange idea. I'm going, to, I'm going to heal this broken, sorry world and all its violence and all its hatred, not with a new educational movement, not with a new program, not by creating a perfect country with a perfect political system. I'm going to die. I'm going to die on a cross and heal humanity. That was God's plan. And there's not a person in this world that Jesus didn't die for. And Paul knows this. Paul, Paul understands this kind of weird death that brings life and that brings healing. And that's why he writes, for Christ did not send me to baptize. He didn't send me to build my own brand. He didn't send me to climb my own ladder. He says, but to preach the gospel, the good news that there is healing and there is life and there is forgiveness in Jesus. Not with the wisdom and eloquence in the ways that build me up like the sophists were doing, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in power. What does that mean? What, what power does the cross have? See, this was, this was God's expression of his self-giving, self-sacrificing love that he has. And it's not about Paul. It was God's plan to heal a broken world. And this is, this is kind of where it gets personal. 
See, we, we've all played a part in uh, broken community, in broken relationships. And so whatever you're, you've done, whatever you're currently doing that, uh, that harms community, that harms relationships or hurts people or creates division or wherever there's brokenness, we need to bring that back to the cross. Bring that back to God. Ask God for, to bring healing into those, those relationships and into you and to use you to bring that kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love into those relationships. Maybe I flatter people. Maybe I, I get impatient. Maybe I use people. Maybe I, I gossip. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I get really angry sometimes. Bring that all to Jesus. Right? I'm a parent, and I see my child going down this path, and it's killing me. Bring that back to Jesus. That's where healing is. Right? I've been through a divorce, and it's killing me. Bring that to Jesus. Right? I've, I've been betrayed, and it's killing me. Bring it to Jesus. Bring your family to Jesus. It's possible for even good things like a family to become an idol, kind of like the teachers were becoming for the Corinthians. Right? And the pressure we put on people to have uh, a perfect family in our culture and to make this idol of the family perfect is crazy. There was an author a couple years ago. She wrote a blog uh, post called How to Be a Mom in 2017. This is amazing. She says, Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, and social needs are met, while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them, in a screen-free, processed foods-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian but also authoritative, nurturing but fostering of independence, gentle but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably on a cul-de-sac with a backyard and one-and-a-half siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. Okay? <laughs> Funny, but a little bit too close to how our culture really, really acts. Then she added this. She said, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. Isn't that great? But God brings healing to this world. He really does. Through the sacrifice of Jesus. He selflessly gave his son. And when we bring our relationships to him and we ask God for help and, and we, we don't worry about others, we can't control them, bring your stuff to God and ask for his strength to pour out this self-giving, self-sacrificing love into those relationships because unity comes through the way of the cross, through self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's where it comes. And when you mess up and I mess up and we will, it's important to remember that, that the power that the best and greatest power we have in this world isn't our IQ, no matter how high yours might be. It's not your charm, charming as many of you may be. It's not your persistence as strong as it may be. The greatest power and the only power that this world has to really heal comes through the power of the cross. So bring it back to him. Ask for his help. And allow him to bring healing to your relationships and to your community through you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that, that we have the example of the Corinthians uh, in, the, in the Bible just to, to learn from. And God, as we're faced with many of these same uh, choices, many of these same issues, God, help us to remember that you're the one that brings healing. 
that, that as, as we try to do these things ourselves, as we rely on our own power, disunity comes from that. Selfishness comes from that. Our egos, ego first mentalities come from that. But God, help us to, to bring that back to the cross. And your example of self-sacrificing, self-giving love, we thank you so much that you did that for us, that we can have a relationship with you. And so we bring our egos, we bring our sins, our self-righteousness, our, our superior attitudes, our failures, our disappointments, all of us. God, we bring that to you and ask for your help and your healing and your power as we try to pour out that same self-giving, self-sacrificing love to the people around us, to bring that kind of unity and community to others. God, you're so good. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.